Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What is Money show. I'm sitting down today with Mr. Bradley Rudler, who is a philosophy professor at the University of Wyoming. Bradley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad you were able to come on and do this. Uh, you've been doing some pretty serious writing about Bitcoin recently. Um, maybe I actually don't know a lot about your journey into Bitcoin. You mentioned offline. It's been a couple of years. Maybe you could just give me the high level detail of, of how you got into the space. Yeah, sure. Um, it was the summer of 2013. Um, I came back from the summer break to grad school at the University of Notre Dame. And one of my uh, classmates who was, I think, starting his fifth year uh, as I was starting my fourth year, had spent the summer getting super into Bitcoin and learning about it and getting obsessed with it and ended up, I think, sending a wire to some Russian bank so that he could buy Bitcoin on btce.org. And then all he wanted to talk about come the fall semester was Bitcoin. <laughs> so no matter what classes anyone was doing or what we were working on, um, he would always just try to steer the conversation towards Bitcoin. And so I'd get little chunks of it here and there, but nothing really that that piqued my interest. Um, but when we finally sat down and, and had a beer and had a real conversation about it, and he started telling me the ideas behind it, um, my mind immediately went to uh, this line in a mall in Singapore where I lived as a kid where people would line up to send money back home. So they, mm. they were from the Philippines or Bangladesh or whatever, and they would move to Singapore, they would work, and then they would send money back and they would pay so much money <laughs> to send money back. And I thought, well, if we could just do this all on the internet, we don't need these money transmitters anymore. So that was my first like insight into how, how Bitcoin could help people. Um, and so I got on board. I, I really liked it, but it didn't seem like something that could be a, a research interest. Nobody in, in academic philosophy was talking about it or thinking about it. There aren't really even that many people thinking about the philosophy of money or even the philosophy of economics. Um, and I was kind of doing other stuff and I needed to finish and get a job. So, um, you know, I, I would go on Reddit and stuff, but I wouldn't really uh, think that deeply about it until 2017 when I went to a, um, conference in Pittsburgh and my friend Craig was giving a paper on Bitcoin. <laughs> it like came out of nowhere. We were friends, but we had never talked about Bitcoin. He had no idea that I was interested in it and I had no idea that he was. So we started talking there and we just kept talking. And my friend Andrew, who I'd gone to grad school with, um, he was kind of interested in it too, but not as a research interest. So we just started corresponding about what we thought was philosophically interesting about it and decided to write this, this paper that we're going to talk about as kind of the first step in introducing academic philosophers to what questions Bitcoin raises. That's really cool. Um, you said something there I wanted to, to drill into and ask about actually. Is why do you think so few people are focused on the philosophy of money or economics? What's going on there? It seems clear that it's extremely important, but I agree that there's just not that much dialogue about it. Do you think there's a, a particular reason for that? I think there's probably a few reasons. Um, one big reason is that your promotion and your grants and all these kinds of things are tied to how much you publish. And anytime you shift your interest 
you have a whole lot of reading to do before you can think to publish something in that area. Mm -hmm. So to shift focus midway through a career is to um, spend a lot of time getting up to speed rather than continuing to churn out papers. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the academic world incentivizes continuing on the same track and churning out um, stuff that you already know, just really minor variations on the same thing over and over again. So there, there needs to be some impetus to get you started in it in grad school. And I think just classically, um, this hasn't been an area where philosophers have spent that much time. I think the other reason is um, it's hard. You have to know economics. You have to know some politics. You have to, if you're going to do good economics, know some math. And that just takes mastering a lot more disciplines. So, I mean, doing Bitcoin, you can add to that uh, computer science and all these other kind of fields. And, you know, a lot of us are just kind of fumbling in the dark for the areas that we don't know as much about. And some of the people who came into Bitcoin through computer science are kind of muddling through the philosophy. Some of us who come in through philosophy are kind of muddling through the computer science stuff. And, you know, I would never want to, uh, you know, be on a, a Bitcoin podcast where they wanted to talk about, you know, Taproot and any of the, <laughs> the debate, the differences between cold wallets or something, because that's just not wh where my strengths are. But, um, yeah. but, you know, you still have to get up enough to speed on it that you can talk intelligibly about it. So, um, yeah, I just I think that has that learning curve has kept a lot of academics out of it that might have otherwise gotten interested in it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that this idea of academic inertia um, mm -hmm. kind of, come, again, comes down to the incentives, right, inherent to the current uh, complex of the academy. That's yeah. really interesting. So let's jump in here. This is your the first paper. We're looking at two papers today. The first one's titled Philosophy, Politics, and Economics of Cryptocurrency One, Money Without State. And uh, I'll let you speak to kind of the, in general what it is, but I'd first like to just read an excerpt. Uh, this is in section three. You actually start talking about cryptocurrency and money. And, you know, clearly the namesake of the show here, we're very curious about what money is and how it influences human action. Um, and you introduced three questions about money, which I'll read. You write, first, money is a a functional kind. Money need not consist of some special material or have a particular origin. Rather, something is money to the extent that it fills a cluster of roles. Standard candidates for those roles include being a unit of account, store value, and means of exchange. So cryptocurrency is money to the extent that it fills these roles. Second, each cryptocurrency has distinct technical, economic, and political features and has achieved varying levels of and kinds of use. It will not be very useful to inquire then whether cryptocurrencies in general fill money roles. We would do better to focus on particular cryptocurrencies and ask about the extent to which each one in particular fills key money roles. Third, when we focus on a particular cryptocurrency, we can disentangle three questions about its relation to key money roles. And you, produce, you introduce Three questions, the actual question, the modal question, and the normative question. The actual is, to what extent does the cryptocurrency fill key money roles? The modal question is, to what extent could the cryptocurrency fill key money roles? The normative question is, supposing that the cryptocurrency could fill key money roles, would it be good, all things considered, for it to do so? 
So it's quite a mouthful. Um, but I'd, if you would be so kind to just kind of unpack your approach here, um, it sounds like what you're calling key money roles, I typically call the properties of money or the traits of money. Um, and one, one way I've described this is that there are no economic goods in a way. Like when we think of goods as a physical, tangible thing, we're actually looking for the services that good will render to us. So it's kind of one of two ways to look at it. Like everything is services ultimately, or you could say economic goods include non-tangible goods like like services themselves. So when it comes to money in particular, I've broken it down to those five properties of money that I recite often, so I won't do here. But it sounds like um, you're digging into something similar with your your framework. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we use we use functional kind and, and the the role talk because I think that's what's familiar to philosophers where we're used to some things being a functional kind and others being a natural kind. So you think of something like a penguin, that's a relatively natural kind. The the differences between penguins and non-penguins are are given to us in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are some things where it seems like something is a member of that kind to the extent that it can do what things of that kind are supposed to do. So the role is functional. Um, You can think of knives like this. Knives can look all sorts of different ways, um, but what they need to do is like be sharp and cut, Mm. but not cut in the way that a scissor spits. Or I think we use the example of a doorstop. Um, Really anything could be a doorstop. And you can ask how how good of a doorstop is um, this tiny chunk of tungsten? Um, how good of a doorstop is this $3 million statue? Hmm. Well, as long as they're both heavy enough, they'll hold the door open. Mm-hmm. So if you're judging them just by fulfilling this role, then um, then that's what matters. And whether or not they count as a doorstop just is a, a function of how well they can do the job that doorstops are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so money is, isn't this thing that comes to us naturally. Um, it's, it serves a purpose. It has a function and something then is money to the extent that it does what money is supposed to do. Um, for a long time, people, I think, seem to think that money was supposed to be valuable. Now we're kind of getting, uh, to the idea that the commodity money was kind of a bad idea mm-hmm. <laughs> and any non-monetary properties that a thing has takes away from its ability to do some of these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we'll talk about that later. So, yeah, so that's that's on money as a functional kind. Um, and then these these three questions are, I think, useful to disentangle because you can see right away why the first question is a bad question. Um, to what extent does, let's say, Bitcoin fill key money roles? Well, if you ask that question in 2007, um, people are going to say, what is Bitcoin? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Um, if you ask it in 2010, um, they're going to say terribly. Nobody's ever bought anything with it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ask it in 2013, okay, pe- some people have bought some pizzas with it, but that's about it. So Bitcoin is coming to fill these key money roles um, more and more over time. And so it's a mistake to just take a snapshot of it at a time and say, to what extent is it doing this? Um, better, I think, to think, to what extent could it do this? Um Suppose, you know, what would it take for Bitcoin to actually do this? Um, How far out of the realm of possibility is it? Does Bitcoin have the intrinsic features 
that are necessary for it to be able to do this. And then we have this normative or ethical or moral question. Um, suppose that Bitcoin could. Um, would it be good for it to do so? So you get a lot of, of uh, anti-Bitcoin people or Bitcoin skeptics who don't think Bitcoin can fill these key money roles. They think it's ill-suited um, based on its features. Then you have some people who think that it can, and that's scary for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they think, uh, wow, B- Bitcoin could really take over. And that would not um, lead to what I think the best vision of the world would be. And so there's like these two camps, the one that's just arguing that Bitcoin, it, you know, isn't a useful money. And then the other kind that's saying, oh, my gosh, Bitcoin um, could be so popular of a money that it could destroy um, all these things that I think are valuable. And so two different lines of argument against Bitcoin, one's more practical and one's more ethical, moral, theoretical. Yeah, I think that you do a great job of sort of circumscribing the Bitcoin rabbit hole here. It's like, <laughs> could, could this thing be money? If so, what are the implications of that? And I appreciate the functional question because that it ultimately is just a matter of fitness, right? If a tree stump, if you can put your ass on a tree stump, then it's a chair, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's serving a, a, a purpose or, or the doorstop as you described. And again, where that takes you right back to what is it that humans demand in money or from money or desire in money? And I think that, I mean, so far as my explorations have taken me, that really is the first principle of money. Ultimately, it's like what, what functional fitness quality or value are humans demanding from this technology or social institution, psychotechnology, <laughs> money's kind of a lot of these different things, you know, it's, yeah. Part technology, part psychotechnology, part social institution. Um, And it really, you know, to your point, you can't take the snapshot in time because it's not, it's ignoring the, again, if we're talking about fitness, it's ignoring the evolutionary track of money, right? It's like, how could Mm -hmm. these properties, how suitable are they as money? I guess in in the long run, the infamous long run, as economists talk about. So it really comes down to how we define money. Because like if we looked at Bitcoin in 2010 and said, oh, nobody uses it as a medium of exchange, it's garbage, it's not money. But that would ignore the, the monetization process itself, actually, that we've observed with gold, at least anecdotally, um, and what Bitcoin's going through now. It's just something we've never actually seen. You know, we have we have somewhat of a historical allegory in gold, I guess, but it's a much longer, more murky, complicated path of monetization, whereas Bitcoin's clearly happening really fast. Um, And so one of the, I'd like to drill into this with you a bit too, because it sounds like that third question really gets to the heart of the, the moral slash political question in play with money. And, um, you know, Nick Zabo describes money as the trust minimized asset. So it was one of the asset you could hold with the minimal need to trust anyone else, right? You could say um, sort of like minimal counterparty risk. I know counterparty is technically the other side of a contract, but if you just consider money like a social contract, you have minimal exposure to counterparties effectively with something like gold, right? That's why people chose gold. It gave 
It exhibited a number of properties and it secured them from the machinations or political will of other people. So another way I think about this is like, okay, money needs to be trust minimized. Another way to say that perhaps is coercion minimization. You just, you have a store of value that's maximally resistant to coercion. Or we could also say maybe political neutrality in a way. And gold was a proxy for all of these things. It provided them to some extent. But it failed in other areas, you know, like portability and whatnot. So, it, and I think this is where Bitcoin's value proposition really starts to blossom when you see that it's taken these properties of gold, but digitized them. So it's improved them by like an order of magnitude. How do you think about that? And like the aspect of coercion and politics playing into money and do, as you said earlier, there's plenty of people that hold a worldview that that's necessary. We need some guy with the biggest stick controlling the money or coercing others when markets don't work or whatever other failure they've contemplated. How do you view that? Do we need coercion or political apparatus controlling the money to any extent? Or do you think Bitcoin um, is something that, that would move us beyond that perhaps? Yeah, I, I, the short answer is I think we'll find out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think Bitcoin will continue to f- actually fill money roles to an increasing degree uh, as time moves forward. And that we'll see whether people continue to find a use for other money that, say, the US dollar. Um, how much people will be able to use Bitcoin for the things that they currently use the US dollar for will determine part of that. But part of it will be, I think, the the way that governments can respond. Um, So I think that sometimes it's very good to be able to print money to help people. Um, For example, if a bunch of people all at once lose their jobs, and instead of trying to figure out what each person needs and local communities organizing and trying to support them. Um, some Sometimes it might be good to just be able to give everyone a bunch of money and say, here, we don't know what you need this for, but we can tell you need it. We don't want you to die. So here you go. Um, that's not something that you can do with Bitcoin. So if you think that that's a valuable thing, then you might think that there's still some use for a money that's controlled by some people. Um, You might also think if bigger groups of people were in charge of the distribution of the money, then you'd get good distributions, but you wouldn't get bad distributions. You wouldn't get, for example, um, creating hundreds of billions of dollars to give out to banks who then use that to um, give their CEOs bonuses and pay off some of their debts rather than giving it to the people whose mortgages they had bought so that those people could keep their homes. So... Um, I think that a lot of people, not just Bitcoiners, I think Bitcoiners were maybe early to the party on this, but a lot of people are realizing that putting monetary policy in the hands of a very small group of people, almost always unelected, uh, is not going so well. And so Bitcoin offers a complete departure from that, right? We have we have a system that is completely non-coercive, right? It totally opt-in. No one will, at least for now, ever demand that you pay them in Bitcoin. Um, 
Whereas you have to pay your taxes in U.S. dollars. So you have to somehow acquire U.S. dollars in order to pay your taxes. If you don't somehow get U.S. dollars, you're going to jail. Um, so Bitcoin's non-coercive in that sense. It's also um, democratically controlled, right? Nodes get to vote on what, what they want the Bitcoin protocol to look like by adopting software upgrades or not, by signaling, et cetera. So it's completely democratic in that sense, but um, it's completely non-democratic in its monetary policy. It comes with a built-in monetary policy and it's democratic in the sense that you can opt in or not. Um, so you have control over that, but you don't have any control over what the policy is going to look like. You don't have any control over the consensus mechanism. It's going to be proof of work. And if you don't uh, you know, solve the, the math problem, then you're not getting the new Bitcoin. We can't just give the new Bitcoin to whoever we think on the network needs it most. Mm -hmm. um, you can only if you win and then you send it. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's just a complete rethinking of how the, the monetary system works. And it doesn't line up neatly into the categories that we used to have in, in terms of thinking about this. So like I've, be, I've been reading a lot of um, like social justice and critical theory, and they keep talking about the importance of the democratization of, of economics and of markets. Um, but they're thinking about that, uh, I think, in a way that just doesn't Bitcoin doesn't have a category for fitting into that because on the one hand, it's completely democratic. Mm. We have all, everyone running their own node. Um, we have complete socialized governance um, and, you know, complete non-coercive, you can opt in or opt out. But on the other hand, absolutely inflexible, rigid monetary policy and consensus mechanism and introduction of new Bitcoin and stuff. Mm. So it was, I think, maybe just not realized that that was possible. <laughs> and right. so we need to to try to figure out how Bitcoin fits into our, our old ways of thinking, or we just need to update them with more dimensions along which currencies can differ. That's it. So the, I have a deeper question, but this is a side question to what you just said. This is social justice warrior slash critical race theory um, literature, I guess. I, I presume that it, uh, puts forth legislation as a mechanism to solve this democratization. They say new laws need to be passed. No, what, what are they? No, definitely they? not. It, it's oh. it's like uh, grassroots activism um, taking over, making like micro communities where um, people who fit your values and who see the same kinds of things that you see in the world um, will opt into them. So totally non-coercive. Um, but, you know, move to a place, start a, a community. They don't talk about money. Um, so it's interesting, but start up like lending practices that you right. find to be acceptable. A, a lot of this is a reaction to how, you know, the, the financial and economic system has treated Black people in the U.S. since um, they were first brought here. And yeah, the idea is legislation is not going to work. <laughs> We've tried that. Um, pr protests, eh, they don't do much. So what we need to do is we need to like opt out of the system and opt into a different system. Right. And we want to make the system look the way that we want it to look. But crucially, they keep saying every, it's got to be a system in which um, everyone has a say yeah. over the things that govern their lives. So, I mean, they don't, as I said, they don't talk about money, but the fact that nobody has a say about, you know, how much, uh, the M2 money supply is going to go up in the U.S. 
would be a huge problem, I think, for, mm. for this view, um, because you need to look at who that's helping and who it's harming. Right. And they think it tends to harm the people who have already been harmed. Which it does. I mean, mm-hmm. both both deductively and empirically. That's interesting. They don't talk about money, though. That means they're just not taking their thinking deep enough. And ultimately, you said it was largely had to do with the way African-Americans have been treated. I wrote a piece on this Masters and Slaves of Money. Like It was the slave bead debacle that led to the transatlantic slave trade. It was the corruption of money that led to mm-hmm. uh, the enslavement of African-Americans. So that's interesting. They haven't permeated that yet. Yeah, so my, my reading has not yet caught up to um, post-existence of Bitcoin and certainly post-popularity of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, back, back in the 80s and 90s when this was really taking off, um, I'm not sure people could conceive of mm-hmm. a money outside of the U.S. dollar. I mean, I before I heard of Bitcoin, I never thought about that. And even when I first heard of Bitcoin, I assumed that yeah. it would still be like denominated in U.S. dollars or something. It was right. just digital U.S. dollars somehow. Um, so it takes a lot of thinking to realize, oh, this is this is like running on its own system. And then how does the system fit in with the values that I have and that the people that I care about have? Yeah, well, it sounds like it's an ideal fit because it's neutral, ultimately. As we said earlier, you know, it's trust minimized, coercion resistant, politically neutral. So if they're going to have this grass wrote, grassroots communal approach to re-architecting civilization, that's the ideal base layer because there's no there's no asymmetry of willpower there. So that that seems like a critical educational piece. That's like I don't I haven't written the reason I asked about this. I haven't read any of the <clears throat> social justice warrior critical race. Very little. I've read very little. Um, but that's an, an interesting gap in in the literature. Then, yeah, and I think I mean I think that this is what. The, the gap is filled, I think, by Isaiah Jackson's book, um, mm-hmm. where he's suggesting that the Black community just switch, switch to Bitcoin. <laughs> the right. U.S. dollar has not helped. It's not helping you. Um, Bitcoin will both help you opt out of the system. It will help you build, you know, kind of your own system. It will help you, at least if trends continue, it will help you grow wealth. It will keep you safe from inflation. And so this is exactly the kind of thing uh, I mean, he's not pitching it as uh, as two critical theorists or using the language of critical theory, um, but I think it very much fits into to the exact kinds of ideas that the critical theorists, at least that I'm reading, like Iris Mary Young, were having. Yeah, and the other component is so not only does it give you you know a very high degree of self sovereignty, uh, wealth preservation, independence, optionality, all these things, but you're also by creating more reservation demand for Bitcoin, you're devitalizing the fiat system, which is the system that's victimizing the economically vulnerable in the first place. So not only are you yeah. taken away from that system, but you're also empowering yourself at the same time. It's a real one-two punch. Yeah. Um, okay, so cl- we're clearly starting to broach on the next topic here of stateless money and how controversial and um, it really is. It's very disruptive to even talk about it or think about it. So one more thing. So one thing you said there earlier that perhaps sometimes we need to print money in the case of some, some economic disaster, people losing their jobs. 
the the issue the pushback i'd have on that is that that implies coercion though like the ability it's not necessarily just to print money if you have free banking any bank could technically just issue their own currency and trade on their own reputation and you know if they if they get too aggressive they become insolvent they collapse you know life goes on but when you have this legal monopoly function protecting the central bank and they're issuing this additional currency that in my mind is coercive so how do you feel i guess philosophically what is your disposition towards coercion in our socioeconomic systems do you like is there a need for it on, on edge cases or is it something we should try to minimize yeah i don't know so when i was talking about we might have a need to print money that doesn't necessarily mean um that then any way of printing money is okay mm-hmm. um so it might be look the best way is if we all get together and we say okay um some people are going to be making more money for a little while some people are going to be making zero money um how should how should we do the money printing and then we have a nice vigorous debate over a couple of days and then everyone votes and we print money mm. um that's one way to do it. the other way to do it is for one person to talk to another person and say hey we should do this and then that person to say yes and then they print you know 1.2 trillion dollars or whatever um just because the ends are good or maybe even better put even if you agree with the ends um you might think the way that they went about doing it was unjust mm. um so another <laughs> Again, I've been reading all this critical theory. So another point in critical theory is it's not just about the distribution of goods and services. It's about the policies that result in that distribution. And furthermore, it's about the policies for making the policies that result mm-hmm. in the distribution. And so even if the distribution turns out to be good, um, that could have been in an unjust way. And we, we know that um, if the way of determining the distribution is unjust, then the distribution itself can turn unjust pretty quickly too. Hmm. So so all that to say, even if you think it was really good during the coronavirus pandemic for, to be able to print money and give it to people who lost their jobs, you could very sensibly still think, I still don't think one person who's not elected should be in charge of printing $1.2 trillion or one pseudo public private organization. Um, so, yeah. So then, then the question is, is, is it coercion for them to print the money? Um, I'm not sure. It certainly seems like you are, you are coerced into using the money. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you and I are, mm-hmm. and so any action that's taken with respect to the money without the consent of the majority seems like it's at least complicit in coercion, even if it's not a coercive action itself. Um, so maybe my my category of coercion is is too negative, but I think of coercion as exploitation due to a circumstance that you put someone in. Mm. And I'm not sure that the, the second part is satisfied. So it might be exploitation mm. um, without being coercion. Uh, but like the, the examples that I give in my philosophy of money class, when we're talking about whether markets can be coercive and stuff is, um, you know, take an example of someone who owns a factory and they say, hey, you can work here and I'll give you food. 
That seems fine. Take an example of someone who owns the only factory on an island and you've shipwrecked and washed up on that island. And they say, hey, want to work for me? I'll give you food. <laughs> That's exploitive. Suppose someone owns the only factory on an island and they have shipwrecked you <laughs> on that island. And then they say, hey, do you want to work for me? I'll give you food. Um, that's exploitative and coercive because they put you in the situation mm. in the first place where they can exploit you. If not for them, they wouldn't have been able to exploit you. So, um, point, so there point. I, yeah. Oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, so I, I was just thinking um, if, if we have those three categories, it might be that um, our position as, you know, users of the U S dollar is being exploited by people who are printing money. And maybe since um, we are required to have US dollars on hand for taxes, maybe it's coercive as well. Okay, I w so point two there, we said if you're shipwrecked on an island, there's only one factory on the island, the factory owner offers you employment in exchange for food. Um, how is that exploitive exactly? Because it seems like someone's got to start the first factory. Like, are you just automatically exploiting people just by virtue of having the only factory on the island? Yeah. If people have no other options. Can't they, um, like, technically, I guess the counter argument, libertarian counter argument would be the other option is go start your own factory. Yeah, I guess if you could, if that was a genuine option. Mm -hmm. So if you had, if there was enough stuff on the island where you could start a factory, you could survive long enough to start the factory. Mm -hmm. um, so as long as you have genuine other options, then you might not be being exploited. Gotcha. Um, okay. But I was thinking you wash up on the island, there's like nothing except this factory. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, then, then any offer that you're given is by nature exploitive because you, you simply can't refuse it or else you'll die. Right. Uh, right. Similar okay. to the, like your money or your life kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. situation. Now, point three makes a lot of sense to me. And that segues nicely into what I think the state is really doing, you know, where you said they shipwrecked you onto the island and then offered you employment in exchange for food. Clearly that's coercive because they shipwrecked you, right? They violated your person and or property to cause that shipwreck. And that's effectively what happened post COVID, right? We have the state basically breaking the legs of entrepreneurs and then selling them a crutch where they're closing all their businesses and then sending them checks, freshly printed mm -hmm. money. Um, but it is, it's mathematically coercive because, you know, one of the packages I looked at worked out to be, I think it was $46,000 per U S household. So there's 130 million U S households. The, I forget the total the total relief package, but it worked out to be $46,000 per U.S. household. They then sent checks to the tune of sub $4,000 per U.S. household. So the Delta $42,000 went where, right? Mm -hmm. Went to whatever, ear earmarks and um, cronies and politicians, all those close to the fiat currency spigot. You know, we don't actually know where it goes completely. It's, it's very opaque. So, I just can't, and I can't identify arbitrary fiat currency supply inflation within within the insulation of a legal monopoly as anything but coercion, because you're you're literally just shifting the call option on wealth from one set of hands to another set of hands. You're not adding you're adding nothing. There's no productive factors being infused in the economy whatsoever. 
Um, so that may be a point of divide between us. I just, I can't get my mind around how it could not be coercive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I started off saying, well, it doesn't have to be. And then I, I described something and I thought, does our situation fit the description? Well, mm -hmm. it seems like we're shipwrecked in the following sense. Um, you're not born into, you're born into a system that you can't opt out of, mm -hmm. um, specifically a monetary system. And then you aren't given options within that system. You don't get to make choices within it. Mm -hmm. So it meets, it seems like it meets the criteria <laughs> that I was um, laying out for my suits. Now, it'll be interesting because um, as the rise of uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies continues, it might get easier and easier to opt out. And so by having competition, fiat currency systems might become less coercive. Um, right. One of the, one of, uh, because they're less exploitative, because you're not in a situation where you have to accept, you right. can say, oh no, I prefer, I prefer this other system. Right. Keeps issuers more honest because con mm -hmm. consumers or individuals have, uh, an exit effectively, right? It's like yeah, voice or exit. You know, if voice isn't working, you can just exit the system. Whereas previously we didn't have that choice at all. You had to kind of pick yeah. your fiat currency and and work with it. Because gold, again, gold doesn't scale. So mm -hmm. um interesting. I guess the la the last point I'd like to put forth is that I think, and again, not having read this literature, but if you're talking about the distribution of money needing to be decided by the largest group of people possible in my mind that is the the highest point would be the free market right where you just have free banking you have a natural interest rate um mediating the supply and demand of money i think ideally bitcoin's a base layer to that something no one can produce produce more of no one can inflate but an individual bank could you know issue more currency or whatever they could even run a fractional reserve on their Bitcoin holdings if they wanted to. Um, but that would be, they'd be taking their own personal risk, right? They're not putting any depositor that's what that bank would have contractually agreed um, that that's what that bank does up to whatever ratio is agreed upon. So I guess it's just the integrity of contract law ultimately seems to really, if you have high integrity property rights and enforceable contract law, then it really minimizes the coercion in the system. Whereas fiat currency inflation is just a violation of contract effectively. The damn thing was supposed to be redeemable for gold. That's how we got into this in the first place. And then we've had this bait and switch and now we're just, you know, we're in like this relativistic postmodernism la la land with money. <laughs> just a trillion here, a trillion there. And before you know it, you're talking about some real money. So. Yeah. So it's interesting, though, because the the property rights and the contract law are also things that you're like born into. And if you're relying on laws to keep people in on both sides of contracts honest, um, then, again, we don't have necessarily a democratic system with respect to that. We don't get to vote on the laws governing contracts right. that we're subject right. to. Right. Um, you can write contracts in, in ways to get around, but sometimes you can't. <laughs> sometimes uh, as someone will say that contract was invalid because we don't allow contracts like that in this country. <laughs> and, and so you simply can't opt into a different legal system.
Yeah, that's a great point. I had a discussion recently with Stefan Kinsella about the difference between discovered law versus legislated law. And just making the point that these, you know, English common law, the ancient Roman law, these long traditions of decentralized legal discovery are much more fair and robust than legislated laws, where it's just some guy, you know, signed a document and said, this is how we do it now versus, you know, thousands of years of tradition have crystallized into this um, common law structure. So again, it's back to fiat, right? It's when one individual or group of individuals is trying to overwhelm or, or it's almost like political sabotage in a way to just say, this is the law. Now you're overriding what the market selected as law historically. Um, so it seems like this, this very idea of human beings attempting to decree a reality is the problem. It's like, we don't need any of that shit. We need to discover prices. <laughs> we need to discover law through competition, right? It's this ongoing process of discovery that keeps everyone honest. Yeah, I think the, the worry that I would have is that the, the discovered prices seems like the more money you have or the more wealth you have, the more you'll get to set that. Discovered laws seem to be the more power you have, the more, or the more military might or something, the more of a say you'll have. So, so neither of them require a, a democratic, either majority rules or just treating everyone as equal under, under the system. Um, if, you have more con- if you have more wealth, you'll have more control over the market. And if you have less wealth, you'll have less control over the market. And so your voice will be either amplified or diminished based on that factor. Yeah, I agree. So I don't see them as ex- quite exactly the same. Yeah, I agree that there's definitely a disparity there. But if we just looked at, say, the distribution of Bitcoin holdings and its short life, like every price cycle sees Bitcoin more widely distributed. And you could say that's almost like a microcosm of pure capitalism because there's no legislation or coercion in the system. And so, you know, based on that theory, yes, a holder of more Bitcoin, they can't change the rules necessarily, but they could disproportionately influence the market. But each individual holder's relative share of Bitcoin is declining with each price cycle. So I, I just take, take that microcosm and think it would work at the macrocosmic level as well. If we had this pure laissez-faire free market capitalist society envisioned by the Austrians for you know hundreds of years, we, we've never tried it, right? It's only been a theory, but now Bitcoin at least gives us the glimmer of hope that it could be much more of a reality. Yeah. And one of the cool things about Bitcoin is the fact that having more Bitcoin doesn't guarantee that you'll keep getting more Bitcoin. Exactly. So if yeah. you start, I mean, you you maybe can, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin doing various things, but right. it's, it's certainly not the case that it will just passively come to you, right? You yes. have to risk some of it in order yes. to get more of it. So yeah, you start with, say you're, you're one of the earliest adopters and you start with 10,000 Bitcoin. Um, that's all you get <laughs> until yeah. you go out and do something to get more Work. of it. Yeah. 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 And you make this point in the second paper, the difference between proof of work and proof of stake, which I think is excellent. So let me go into the second, or I'm sorry, we're in the section four here in your paper titled stateless money. I'll just read one more excerpt. This, and this is why I think the philosophy is so important related to Bitcoin, because to your earlier point, this just shatters worldviews, right? It's like 
no one had conceived of anything like this ever existing. I arguably Hayek, right. With the sly roundabout way, he just kind of envisioned the, the possibility of something like this rectifying government control of money, but no one, it doesn't seem like many people saw it coming. So the philosophy I believe is important because we now in the wake of a shattered worldview, we have to reestablish these anchor points. It's like, okay, if it does succeed, what does the world look like? Cause it doesn't look anything like what it does today. So I want to read this excerpt here. Money without state is controversial to put it, to put the point mild, mildly. Economists agree more often than do philosophers, but not by much. So it is striking to observe the orthodox status of the view that issuing money is a critical state function. The standard argument for orthodoxy is simple. Powerful market forces engender the creation of too much money. If Schrute bucks have any value at all, Dwight has an incentive to print more. The incentive remains until the value of a Schrute buck equals the marginal cost of printing a new Schrute buck. This result holds even if Stanley is also printing Stanley Nichols. Competition between private issuers is no solution. What is needed, says orthodoxy, is a currency issued by an actor that responds to other incentives, political forces, and elections, which prevents over-issuance. There is some irony here, since state-issued currencies are not obviously immune to over-issuance. Bitcoin, furthermore, is provably free of such over-issuance by design. Bitcoin's architecture answers a standard objection to privately issued currency. So it's kind of just bucking the statist argument for control over money, right? It's that this conception of government as some form of human organization that is different than all other businesses, I think is the flaw. I think all human organizations are businesses. They're all accountable to a bottom line of some sort. Um, and the idea that we have heads of state or leaders that are, you know, more compelled by morals or divine right or whatever it is, that's not a profit motive. I think that is incorrect thinking. So a lot of this justification I see given is like, oh, we need to give control to the state so they don't overissue. It's like that sounds like an excuse for you to monopolize the money and coerce people. <laughs> well, I maybe a little more charitably, you could put it like this. For a long time, people thought we had two options. Um, we had control over money by a small group of state actors or control over money by a small group of private actors. And if the private actors are in charge, you get this problem that as long as it's profitable to them, they will keep printing money, profitable to them. Um, who cares about anyone who's holding the money? Um, they're going to do what's best for themselves. And so they're going to keep printing money as long as it makes them money. So we want to remove the profit motive. Um, let's, let's do it um, via the state because there the state doesn't have a profit motive. It has like a service motive or something. Um, but I, that's why I what, disagree. I think the state, well, individual actors within the state do have profit motives. Yeah, perhaps. But what, what you could say, though, is Bitcoin has just shown us that that is now a false dichotomy. It might have been the case because there was no way to set in stone a monetary policy that was not subject to anyone um, changing it at any time. And now with Bitcoin, we have the first chance of a money that you can't print more of, even if it would be profitable for you to do so. Mm -hmm. um, nobody has a choice about that. And so 
Now we have to compare um, state-controlled money, privately controlled money, and algorithmically controlled money, hmm. um, where Bitcoin is just going to keep distributing, you know, exactly how much money it's going to distribute in any given year, um, every however many minutes. So you don't have to worry about people trying to manipulate the money supply to make themselves richer. You also don't have to, have to worry about people trying to manipulate the money supply for other reasons that governments might have. Maybe it's profit, maybe it's something else. Um, but the ability of a small group of people to manipulate the money supply has caused problems for um, lots of people, particularly of low socioeconomic status in the past. And so Bitcoin protects them from um, profit-seeking actions, but also other actions that uh, even if you impute the best motives to government, um, they're still taking actions that maybe they shouldn't be able to take. Because maybe um, even if they're trying to get the right distribution, the fact that they can do that isn't just to go back to the critical theorist stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, I'll, I'll read another excerpt here. And now you're talking a bit about inflation. And you say proponents of standard inflation arguments have identified five problems with inflation. That inflation entails a loss of purchasing power, inflation is a tax, inflation is hidden, inflation is subject to capricious political processes, and inflation penalizes savings or investment over consumption. Um, and you go on to write, but there's a wrinkle. New supplies of money have to appear somewhere. This is in re regards to the uh, redistributive effects of inflation. And there's no guarantee that a rise in prices will percolate outwards in a uniform, expeditious way. One result can be a redistribution of purchasing power towards those who are closest to the supply of new money, e.g. those who sell debt purchased with new money. I agree with what you write there, but I would say it a little bit more strongly that it's, it's not possible to distribute money uniformly um, in a fiat system. It's it always goes through channels that create redistributive effects. Um, hence the game, right? Everyone wants to get as close to that redistribution as possible and externalize the cost uh, away from them and their business as much as possible. Yeah, I think it's, it seems like it's in principle possible. Um, it's just never actually turned out that way. So there's reason to think maybe it's psychologically, it, it, unless you, again, write it down um, and make it unchangeable, um, there's always going to be people who are in charge who want a little more for themselves or a little more for their friends or a little yeah. more from some for some specific group. And so while it could be introduced perfectly, fairly, evenly, justly, whatever, um, given the fact that it never has been, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's silly to think that, Oh, if we just, if we just try again, it, we'll do better next time. <laughs> yeah. History has taught us that that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, the most uniform distribution possible would be something akin to a street stock split where you just say every $1 is worth $10 mm -hmm. now, something like that. But I can forget which author it was, but they made the point that this, this too would create dislocations in the marketplace though. Because then people would go out and buy, you know, would change buying patterns and um, it would just create unnecessary perturbation in the marketplace and basically accomplish nothing. So mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I mean, you could tell everyone, you could tell everyone add a zero to your bank account, yeah. to every bill, but that, I mean, it does not, yeah, it doesn't yeah. do anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've thought about this from a lot of angles and I just can't. And this is why it's so amazing to me that the indoctrination related to inflation has been so effective. Like I still know really smart people that think it's good, healthy thing. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it's a testament to human fallibility. Yeah. And a testament to being comfortable with what you're used to. <laughs> like we right. grew up, our, we've lived our entire lives in an inflationary system. You know, it's okay to take on uh, debt that you have to pay back at a higher percentage rate, even for things that aren't going to give you yield because they're going to keep getting more valuable because inflation, you know? Yeah. So if you're going to buy a house and you're going to pay 4, 4.5% in interest, the value of the house is going to go up because the money is going to be worthless. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard to shake yourself out of that yes. way of thinking. Yes. Yes. The Yeah. Even that the value is going mm-hmm. up is an illusion itself, right? It's, <laughs> it's the unit of economic perception is being diminished. So we think we're richer. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting. Um, one line in here, I just want to read this one line I thought was very apt. You wrote inflation is a debt forgiveness program for the global rich. <laughs> yeah. I think I've, I think I've written that in now four or five different <laughs> things that I've, <laughs> I've published. Cause I think actually my, my co-author Andrew Bailey originally came up with that line and it's just, I mean, it's exactly right. When you have um, debt, then and the money gets worth less then your debt gets worth less yes so whoever can be in the most debt yes. uh, is the most helped by inflation and as you know i care a lot about financial justice i care a lot about like leveling the playing field for people who don't have as much money and inflationary systems are terrible for those people because they nobody's going to give them multiple millions of dollars of loans right. um, for them to then buy hard assets and then pay back the loan later, et cetera. So the people who can take advantage of the system are people that already have a lot of wealth. They can get huge loans. They can build businesses based completely on debt. Yeah. Um, and then the debt sort of withers away as the, as the value of their money yeah. um, goes down. Yeah. It's very, very centralizing, almost akin to proof of stake, which you get into later, right? Um, I think it's really well said, and I, I have described fiat currency as an uncollateralized debt certificate undergoing slow motion default while its use is forced on society. Um, so there's a real problem. I mean, it's, it's oxymoronic in a sense that we're so uh, immersed in debt-based money. It's like it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a contradiction in terms almost. Um, yeah, I still I've I've done quite a bit of reading on on the differences between theories of money and this is one that I still don't feel like I understand. Um the, there's a theory out there that says that money has to be debt. That's just oh, what money is. This is the gray thing. Yeah. And and I don't I I guess I just don't don't understand that. Um <laughs> I can see how debts are denominated in money, but I don't see how a some. No, I guess I as, as I've read more like modern monetary theory, and I see how um, when countries buy 
treasury bonds from the US and we do something in our bookkeeping system that somehow uh, uh, a debt is created when the money is created. Yes. Um, but th- those are like different things. <laughs> yes, they balance yes. each other out, but the money isn't the debt. Um, it's the right. opposite of the debt. So I, I, I just don't understand it. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a rationalization. I, I think the, the only truth that's seasoned in there is that, you know, primitive cultures, pre-money cultures, you could say, it's hard to say exactly what money is or when it starts, but we're often conducted through favors or IOUs, right? It's like, Hey, I'm going to go catch some fish. When I come back, you know, I want some apples and we'll swap it out. So technically debt could have been considered money in that primitive situation. Um, and then they almost try to hijack that definition and say money is that which satisfies a debt. So debt is money, but then money is the thing that retires a debt, but it's circular and doesn't make any sense. So I agree. It feels like some apologism for fiat currency <laughs> or MMT, perhaps yeah. more broadly. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. We'll jump into your second paper now, which is titled Philosophy, Politics, and Economics of Cryptocurrency 2, The Moral Landscape of Monetary Design. Um, and in the beginning, you talk about privacy, but I'll, I'll read an excerpt here. And I'll, I have a question following that. You're right. Privacy has seemed to many a pro tanto good that makes us better off in some respects. Although privacy is also seemingly a final good, a good properly valued for its own sake, it also has instrumental value in enabling social relationships, contributing to human dignity, and facilitating variety in lifestyle. This can all be true, note, even if privacy makes us worse off in other respects, and even if we have no absolute right to privacy. Despite widespread agreement on the value of privacy, financial privacy, that is, privacy with respect to buying, selling, and storing value is not widely discussed or defended. As we'll see, though, it deserves renewed attention, especially in relation to cryptocurrencies. For as financial privacy continues to erode, cryptocurrencies provide new tools to protect it. Um, can you tell me what protanto means? I actually don't know what that means. Yeah, it just means um, to, to some extent oh, or other. Okay. So it might be a good that's outweighed by other things, but, you know, at least to start off, it should be thought as to some degree good. So do you think 
privacy is a necessary quality of property and or money for for a functional socioeconomic system because this this is kind of a contentious topic and you you always get hit with that question people like or not even a question i guess it's an assertion people say well i don't have anything to hide i don't need privacy <laughs> um what but then ayn rand has this amazing quote on privacy that it's basically essential to to civilization frankly which i'll have to look up the quote um Maybe you could just fill me in on your perspectives on, on privacy as it relates to, to money and property. Yeah, so I think that um, you might have nothing. Well, so I, I always respond because people I, I've heard this line before too. And I, I just always say, yet. <laughs> um, <sighs> because something about your situation might change um, or something about the situation around you might change. So you might not change at all, and yet people could come to power from whom all of a sudden some of the things that you don't think you need to hide, you need to hide. Right. Um, or you could be put in a new situation where all of a sudden you don't want, say you have a new medical problem or mm. a new marital problem or something like that. Um, so the the guiding idea is that how much privacy you sh- you have is up to someone and maybe it should be up to you. <laughs> Maybe you should be given the, the choice over how much you want to divulge and how much you don't want to divulge. And I think this is especially becoming, uh, a, so I think even before, I think when we started writing this, there was not much talk of central bank digital currencies. And so it was just how private do you want your cryptocurrency to be? Um, you've got, um, Cryptocurrencies like Monero that are premised on privacy. Then you've got other ones where you have to work a little bit to to make them more private. So with Bitcoin, you want a coin join or something like that in order to make your transactions um, and sending and stuff even even more private. Um, But there wasn't this this idea that we, we couldn't have private transactions with US dollars. Now people are starting to wonder if the US government comes up with a central bank digital currency that they can infallibly track and they start to uh, phase out cash. Cash has always been our way of transacting privately. So if you had a purchase that you wanted to make that you didn't want your spouse to find out about, that you didn't want your um, kids to find out about, that you didn't want Visa to find out about, you could always pay cash. Uh, what happens if that option is gone? Uh, so it's interesting to see even strongly anti-Bitcoin people who are very, um, very far on the states should control the money supply and stuff like that side of things um, come out really strongly in favor of private central bank digital currency. So Rohan Gray is, is an example of this. Um, very much anti-Bitcoin, very much public money, um, but also very much the money needs to be, you need to be able to transact privately with it. Um, so yeah, I think I think the guiding principle is we should, we should presume that people should be in control of divulging the information that they want, and we shouldn't um, require them to do so. It makes very intuitive logical sense that you know you should be able to divulge um what you want about yourself 
in your holdings. Um, if even if you have nothing to hide, I love how you said yet, because all it does, <laughs> all it takes is one bad actor to step onto the stage that wants to take whatever you have. And then you may not want to be a target to that individual or individuals. Um, mm -hmm. I'd like to read this Ayn Rand quote, which I think is spectacular. She writes that civilization is the progress toward a society of privacy. The savage's whole existence is public, ruled by the laws of his tribe. Civilization is the process of setting man free from men. I mean, that is, that's a quote you can think about for a long time. Um, I've been reading this book recently, The Discovery of Freedom, uh, which was actually written by one of Rand's contemporaries. And uh, the author makes the point that we, early civilizations were all communistic, right? They're all little communes. It's what we've always had is um, tribes banding together, doing what they can, pulling the resources. The guy with the biggest stick sort of divvies them up and tells them what to do with it all. That's how we did it. <laughs> um, it wasn't until, you know, there's a, there's a, a long, um, a long history here, but this development of the ideas of life, liberty, and property, the Protestant Reformation, uh, the Protestant work ethic, these things all gave birth to capitalism effectively, which was a brand, which was the mode that got us to today, broke us out of this communistic um, small scale mode of, of human organization. And it seems like privacy is part and parcel to that. You just can't have peaceful cooperation if people don't have some ability to at least I mean, maybe it's not an absolute right, but at least some capacity to be private or become private about themselves, about their identity or their holdings, things like this. Yeah, it would be it would be weird to imagine like a capitalistic hunter-gatherer tribe <laughs> where you're like trading, you know, very specific. It, it seems like the, the closer you get to like a family atmosphere, the yes. weirder capitalism sounds. So if my, you know, if I'm making breakfast for my son and I'm like, well, okay, so now you owe me $5. Yes. And then he's like, well, I vacuumed the carpet. So you owe me six. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. So the, the closer the relationships with, with the people are, the less, the less capitalism makes sense within that. And perhaps privacy is similar too. So I, I mean, we still have privacy within our families, Yes. Um, but it's to a much less of a degree than we have even with our neighbors. And then of course, even more so with, people who live in, uh, far from us. So yeah, I guess as, as we interact with more people, um, you didn't, you just didn't have to worry about privacy and hunter gatherer tribes because who was going to find out. Right. Um, and you wouldn't care about the, the people close to you knowing that stuff, but yeah, I mean, I, I always give the, the example of, um, having to divulge your medical records to like, how many people are you willing to, to have know that, um, maybe some of your very close friends, you don't, you don't want to see, um, what medications you're taking or what conditions you have, but then you're not going to tell your doctor stuff about your friends. So it's not even just, um, how much privacy you want, but there might be specific things that are, that you want to share with specific social circles that you're in. Right. Right. Um, and for whatever reason, it, it seems like your financial information, um, 
not things like your private keys or your bank account passwords and stuff, but how much money you have and where it's invested. Um, people tend to hold that really close, um, mm-hmm. closer even than than some things that we might have thought were far more private, mm-hmm. um, like their, um, I don't know, how their relationship with their spouse is going or something mm-hmm. like that. You might share that with more, even if it's going really poorly, you might share that with more people than you would um, how your investments have done this year. Mm. So I don't know why, but part of the reason maybe is because we know what money represents. It represents basically anything that we want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we translate figures into goods and we think about um, what people will do with it and what their future will look like based on the money that they have. And so it, it turns out to be something really important. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting thing to think about. People are very private about their wealth position, let's say, or net worth position. It seems to me like that relates to the taboo of power in a way, because it's like clearly the more wealth you have, the more powerful you are. Um, and perhaps that just, it's in the individual's interest to play that one close to the chest because they don't really gain anything from, from divulging. So, um, I mean, I guess you could you could argue that you do gain notoriety or fame or whatever that comes along with being, you know, well known and super rich. But to at least have the option to not <laughs> disclose that is is a nice nice feature. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good point because when you're when even things like your medical history or your marital status or something, um, divulging that you could gain the understanding that someone is, you know, sharing that with you. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you tell them, you know, how much Bitcoin you have or something, it's like, nobody cares. Uh, yes. This could only be bad for you. It can so. only be bad for you. Yeah. 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 I think I could issue that as, I think a pretty sound piece of advice. Just don't tell anyone how much Bitcoin you have for pretty much anyone. I mean, if you really want to, by all means, do whatever you want, but I don't see how that's ever advantageous to you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's ever a situation in which it, you could gain something from it. Whereas telling someone that, you know, you're having troubles in your marriage, you could gain, could help you at the very least, they could console you. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they don't do that, at least you've gotten it off your chest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know why you'd need to get how much Bitcoin you have off your chest. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And your earlier point too, compassion does not scale effectively, right? Like clearly, and, and Taleb makes this great point where he talks about the scale variance where he is a communist inside of his family, right? Like clearly everything is just pulled resources, you know, son, you want a sandwich or an omelet? I'm not going to charge you for it. There's not a bid ask at breakfast. It's just <laughs> here, here it comes. But as you organize more and more humans, you know, and you, you scale uh, human cooperation, you have to become more capitalist because that does, it just doesn't work. People, we end up becoming rows and columns on a spreadsheet to one another effectively, right? Versus a close interpersonal relationship. So there has to be some quantifiable, neutral rule set through which we abide uh, because compassion doesn't work at that scale effectively. So that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. I I find it really interesting to think about why communism has never worked given uh, at at that scale, given that Mm -hmm. it 
pretty much works in every family. Mm-hmm. And so we we have this desire maybe for our societies to be more like family, but clearly that hasn't happened. So mm-hmm. yeah, this is a good explanation perhaps as to why you just can't care about that many people or love that many people. And in order for communism, you legitimately have to care as much or more about the good of other people as you do about yourself. Right. So I would much rather my son be happy than me be happy. If I have a choice, make him happy all day long. Um, but then if I have to do that with a thousand people, right. uh, I'm, I'm less willing to do that. Yes. But Stalin prefers himself to be happy over the hundred million beneath him. Oh you know? yeah. So it's like, there's, there's, there's that aspect. And I think there's also this Hayekian aspect where the more power you put into fewer hands, the nature of the power changes. Like it's intoxicating. It corrupts people mm-hmm. and, you know, absolute, you know, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Um, that seems to me to be the, the core. I mean, there's, you know, Mises has annihilated socialism and communism um, from a, a price uh, signal standpoint, but it also just, I don't think you can give, that much power to individual to an individual or a group of individuals and not expect it to have really bad consequences. Yeah. And I think you can't, even if, even if you could imagine the, the ultimate benevolent person at the top, that person has to ask everyone else Mm -hmm. to basically treat all the rest of them. So, so any one person amongst the the thousand who doesn't opt in is then making it harder for everyone else. And so even if the person at the top who has never historically been uh, willing to do it, even if they could do it, um, everyone else has to also do it as well. And that Mm. just seems unlikely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's perhaps a good segue here into consensus matters. This is point. 4.1 in your your second paper. I'll just read another excerpt here. Authorities on payment networks can censor and spy on users precisely because they serve as useful intermediaries. Not only do they settle accounts between parties who may not otherwise trust each other, they also protect the integrity of financial systems by ensuring that no one spends the very same money more than once. We hope it is clear then how questions about consensus connect with more familiar normative questions. Since the ledger dictates where the money is, questions about how to update update it implicate classic issues in political theory, such as who should rule and how, or how is the constitution to be amended? Although cryptocurrencies eschew authorities, they still aim for integrity without authorities to issue top-down judgments about who has who has which amounts of value cryptocurrency networks must achieve consensus some other way governance without government very potent paragraph there <laughs> and this is um i mean this is the big question right like who should rule and how and you know, i mentioned this to you earlier I think it was offline that I was becoming increasingly Rothbardian in my explorations lately. And I think the answer for me to that question is no one and in no way other than, you know, the 
successful entrepreneur in the marketplace respecting the boundaries of life, liberty, and property. Because then that individual has maximally satisfied the wants of the broadest number of people to become rich, right? He hasn't violated anyone's life, liberty, or property, but he has delivered some useful function into the marketplace in a profitable, through a profitable process. So wouldn't we want those people at the top of the socioeconomic heap, so to speak? Um, yeah, I guess here I was thinking less about, or we were thinking less about um, who should rule in general as to who should rule over the ledger in particular. Mm. So, I mean, we we don't want those people to, to be the only miners and full nodes on the Bitcoin network. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want them to be in charge of who has how much money. We don't want to give them outsized power. Um, they'll have perhaps outsized wealth um, compared to other people, but that shouldn't give them, if you go the proof of work way anyway, that shouldn't give them any more control over what the ledger says right. than anyone else. Not changing the rules. Yeah, they can't. They can neither change the rules nor can they change the what the ledger says to suit what would be good for them for the ledger to say. Right. So I mean, it's. It's just the the more we think about this all in perspective, the the more appreciation I have for Satoshi's understanding of human nature mm-hmm. and understanding of how so like wealthier people, if they want to, will be able to get more Bitcoin than poorer people will. Mm-hmm. Um, entrepreneurs who contribute more to the marketplace will will get more Bitcoin. Um, if you go to say Bitcoin twenty twenty two. And one person selling delicious baklava and another person is selling, um, you know, something less valuable than that, then, you know, the Bitcoin's going to flow one direction. Um, But I think Satoshi had this idea that you just described that that absolute power corrupts absolutely, where if you give those people then an outsized control over the network, um, not only will the economic situation be worse, but the monetary situation would be worse. We couldn't trust the ledger anymore and it would it would fall apart. So this idea that regardless of how much Bitcoin you have, you have an equal say in what the ledger says if you run your own node is really important, I think, to mm. this. Um, you're validating every transaction, checking it against what your ledger says, making sure that um, the account that someone's trying to move Bitcoin from has enough Bitcoin in it and so on. So that no matter how powerful you are, you can't double spend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's a, this is a very deep point. And, you know, we, we throw around these three tenets of natural law, life, liberty, and property often, but I really believe property is deeply misunderstood. Um, because ultimately property is the ledger, right? It just says you own this, right? You have recourse to some, uh, political apparatus. Should someone try to violate the relationship between you and that asset? Um, and the problem historically has been who gets to keep that list, who gets to amend that list, you know, how do we pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. And, 
And Satoshi's breakthrough really is that, right? It's it's perfected the ledger of property in a way that's in such an interesting new equilibrium of some kind, like a game theoretic equilibrium or shelling point. And um, maybe that's what we should do, change it to life, liberty, and ledgers, or the ledger, <laughs> instead of calling it property. Because every time you say property, people think real estate or they think stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's not about that. It's about the you know mutually acknowledged consensual relationship between owner and asset. That's what that's yeah. the basis of civilization. Yeah, we do have this problem though that um, so Martin Glazer, who's also a philosopher, has written on the the problems with enterprise blockchains. So, mm-hmm. Called something like um, the, maybe the the problem of blockchains of the real world or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could have a ledger that that talks about physical property. Um, it's just sometimes not going to be correct because it's if it says you own um, right. something and then I come and steal it, um, then you you may be still listed on the ledger as owning it, but um, you don't have it. You can't trade it. If you offer it to someone else and trade, they'll check the ledger. Oh yeah, uh, Robert can give me that, so I'll give him this other thing. But really, you can't give them that. So. We have this interesting case with Bitcoin where what the ledger says, or rather the fact that the ledger says that some Bitcoin is at an address makes it the case that that Bitcoin is at the address. There is no truth outside of the ledger, Um, but the ledger tracks the truth within the ledger um, perfectly accurately. So yeah, I think we still need, we still need property, but then we have this, this special kind of property one that's tracked in this distributed ledger kind of way um, that has these rules governing how to add to the ledger that makes it so interesting. And I don't think, as far as I know, Satoshi never talked about trying to keep track of physical assets on the Bitcoin blockchain. Other people have talked about this since then, but I think, I mean, either he either he didn't consider it or he considered it, but realized this could never work <laughs> yeah. because things move in the real world um, and the blockchain's not automatically going to track that, right. whereas the blockchain will track all movement of Bitcoin all the time. Yeah, this is the, I mean, I think it's a manifestation of the Oracle problem, right? It's like the a blockchain, I think as Zabo says, will preserve truth and lies equally. So it seems like the, I mean, and this is where my thinking is currently, because we need if Bitcoin succeeds, there's going to have to be some ledger keeper for other forms of property besides the state, or maybe it's still the state, but it's some evolved version of the state, not what we we have today. Um, and it seems like the best we could do would be to try and emulate those properties of Bitcoin, Bitcoin's ledger as closely as possible. But you could never actually get there, you know, because, because Bitcoin is just dematerialized uh, it's just information, right? So it's 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 almost like the flow of truth is from Bitcoin outward, whereas when you're talking about physical property, we have to point it back at the ledger, right? We have to get the mm-hmm. the reality onto the ledger. So it's a, it's a reversal of flow. I think about this too that there's this quote by Carl Schmidt that said, "Sovereign is he who can decide the exception." And that's been like the purview of the state historically is like they keep the list of property, they, they maintain the ledger, they also decide exceptions, right? Eminent domain, inflation, regulation, taxation, whatever. And so Satoshi's breakthrough is 
this exception proof ledger. <laughs> this is so beautiful. It's like, okay, you've created the first ledger that's immune to exception. And in doing so, you've maximized individual sovereignty because no one can make the exception. So it's like, it's mind blowing. It's just beyond, mm-hmm. it's, it's man-made, but beyond the reach of man, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've both maximized and completely done away with because, you know, nobody can make the exception. Yeah. So nobody, in that sense, nobody is sovereign. Um, but in another sense, because nobody is sovereign, then everybody is sovereign. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Put it on the list. <laughs> yeah. I wonder too, whether, so maybe, maybe the mistake is in thinking, Maybe there is a mistake in thinking that the blockchain and the ledger can do for other things what it did for money. So maybe Satoshi's breakthrough was, look, given how money works, this is what's going to perfectly track money. Mm-hmm. But maybe we need a radically a radical rethinking of how you could do that with like actual real world physical assets. Um, that's not going to be some distributed ledger, but it's going to be something else entirely. And we need like a a new Satoshi to figure out how to do that with like real estate or um, other kinds of physical property. Cause yeah, yeah, clearly we're always, we're always going to have this problem that someone could take something that (laughs) doesn't belong to them. Yeah. I'm, I'm really trying to wrestle with this lately. Have you heard of the book democracy, the God that failed by Hoppe? Yeah. Um, I haven't read it, but if you ever get a chance, check out just the introduction in chapter one. I think they're so, it's just, it's an extremely good book. Um, But he kind of makes the case that monarchy is superior to democracy in a lot of ways. Um, Basically boiling down to the incentives of the monarch versus the democratically elected leader. Hmm. And the, I mean, this is very theoretical i have no idea but it's just like it seems like if bitcoin really succeeded separated money and state that clearly this would reduce the scale of the state i mean their revenue model declines precipitously right inflation goes to zero taxation gets much um more honest let's say much more consensual um that it would shrink the state in theory and so it seems like maybe we go back towards a more monarchical style model where like you've established territorial dominion, right? You protect a physical city or space. And then um, perhaps citizens come into this monarchy or citadel as Bitcoiners like to call them. They put down a Bitcoin deposit, right? That pays some flat fee for certain services. And then the monarch basically owns all the property within these walls, but he, you know, he or she or they, they, they rent them out to their citizens. Um, and then so Bitcoin becomes kind of like a, a distinctive property in and of itself. Everyone's using Bitcoin and holding Bitcoin, but physical property is something that's more the purview of the monarch and rented to the citizen. Uh, again, super theoretical and out there, but I, I don't know, I can't reconcile how else we deal with physical property because it doesn't maybe there's some technological breakthrough but it doesn't work like just put it on the blockchain like this whole idea of just put it all on the blockchain and it fixes it like that doesn't work um yeah there's this oracle problem that we have to deal with 
Yeah, but but I would have said that in 2008 about money. <laughs> right. And then all, someone came up with this idea of how to do it. So yeah, maybe there is some some advance yet to be made by someone who sees the problems and potential solutions and maybe there's enough of the bits of it out there to be combined. I just I'm not the one to be able to figure it out, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, if anyone's listening to this and you've got an idea, <laughs> please let us know. Uh, I'm going to read one more excerpt here. You're talking about now the differences between proof of work and proof of stake. You write proof of work requires miners to solve energy intensive problems and rewards the first solver with new currency. More energy and better hardware increase the odds of success. Proof of work guarantees that those who've spent the most on these things have the best chance to win. And those who've spent the most are unlikely to try to cheat the system since winning honestly is more lucrative than cheating. I mean, that it's so powerful when you consider incentives to be this prime mover of human action. And I just see proof of work as like something we need. We needed, I mean, even gold again, was kind of this analog proxy for proof of work. That's what maintained its supply scarcity and all that. But Bitcoin in a way kind of perfects it. And it seems like that kernel is what the market needs to operate successfully. Like you want people to work and render satisfaction to others that, you know, to create value for others and value for themselves in the process. That's the way to make a wealthy, abundant, prosperous society. So I don't know, like what, this gets philosophical for me, but I really think work is like a very important thing. It's like, it's talked about a lot in the Bible and, and other texts. Um, I'd love to hear your your perspectives on it. Yeah, I think uh, we we generally don't want to reward people for not doing anything. <laughs> uh, we we don't think people should get something for nothing, or at least we ex- we expect them to do what they're capable. Of. So some people might not be capable of working, and we understand, and we want to take care of them. Um, but the best situation is one in which people who can work are are doing work and specifically doing uh, work that highlights their abilities, work that they can do better than anyone else or better than they could do any other work. So, yeah, I think, I, like you said, I think innate in us, we have this idea that work should be rewarded um, and that sitting around not doing anything, if you could be working, it should not be rewarded. So when we think about um, mechanisms for where new Bitcoin or new ETH go to, we have two options. We can give it to people who are expending resources. Now they're not like, you know, furiously scribbling math down or something, but they're they're spending money um, on money that they've had to earn doing something on securing the Bitcoin network. And in in compensation for that, we give them a chance at winning. Um, People who have ETH, they now, of course, ETH is still on the proof of work model, but that that mythical someday when it <laughs> transitions to proof of stake, um, indeed, then it will be and coins that are currently on proof of stake models. Um, you don't do anything. You you have some you have some of the coin. Maybe you believed in it early on or something, and so you exchanged money for it. But now you're just being rewarded for for sitting on it and for not doing anything. And we, we just 
don't think that that's a good model of, of how to reward people. Um, and furthermore, if you are actually exchanging something to get more Bitcoin, if you're exchanging dollars, if you're exchanging electricity, if you're exchanging dollars for electricity to get more Bitcoin, then you're incentivized for the network to be uh, robust and you're less likely to um, try to attack it because, I mean, imagine someone who's spent however many thousands of dollars on ASIC miners. Mm. If they successfully attack the Bitcoin network, those ASIC miners are now worthless mm -hmm. because nobody believes in Bitcoin because it can be 51% attacked. So um, the fact that you've sunk all these resources into securing the Bitcoin network, you're not only incentivized not to attack it, but you're incentivized to do everything you can to make sure it can be attacked. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the incentives line up there, whereas with ETH, um, or I, should, I keep saying with ETH, um, with proof of stake currencies, of which ETH is not currently one, but is supposed to be one sometime in the future, um, the, the incentives don't line up in the same kind of way. So I think there's both the, the deep-seated understanding of the value of work that, that pulls in favor of proof of work, and also just this, again, brilliantly game-theoretically designed um, bit of... of uh, the proof of work model that that seems to make sense. Yeah, I agree. It's um, you know, in a thermodynamic sense, it's like work is all that we cannot counterfeit by definition. It's like something that must be there must be an energy expenditure to create. Um, and when you try and work around that or obviate that or cheat that it just there's there's an externality of some kind and it, it doesn't work right um it doesn't work <laughs> kind of trapped in the language there um <laughs> i'll read one more excerpt here and then you know i my general view here is that gold was analog proof of work central banking was effectively a proof of stake model built on top of gold and we saw how that went so i this i really at the most fundamental substrate of proof of stake, I think it just fails. I don't think it works at all. Um, and you write here, the, the primary advantage of proof of stake is that it is not proof of work. It does not, unlike proof of work, burn energy for security. But problems abound. First, the rich get ever richer. The more currency you have, the more likely you are to get more. Although there are technical proposals for limiting this effect, the end game here tends towards domination by a few early holders. Makes that's that's it in a nutshell for me. And I'd like to just read this verse for to everyone who has will more. I'm sorry. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Matthew 25, 29. That's proof of stake <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> Annihilated yeah, in the Bible. So it, well, so, so there it sounds kind of so that that's it. The context of that, right, is when um the the guy gives like 10 talents, five talents, one talent or something, mm -hmm. and the person who goes out and uses it to make more um gets more. The person who buries it in the ground 
and doesn't use. So it would be interesting to have someone who just like um, deposits it and gets interest or something mm-hmm. rather than like creating anything new with it, just sitting on it. Right. Um, but yeah, clear, clearly the person who uses it. So if you have some Bitcoin and you trade your Bitcoin for a Bitcoin miner, then you could get more Bitcoin from the miner. Um, that is, yeah, different than just sitting with the Bitcoin you have and then automatically getting more. Yeah. Um, and it does seem like, I mean, every every aspect of the proof of work consensus mechanism is better than the proof of stake consensus mechanism, except for the amount of energy that it uses. And so I think it's, there's a lot of people now who are thinking really hard about what this energy use um, means, whether it's bad, whether it's neutral, or whether it's good. And uh, there are a lot of interesting proposals now to suggest that actually when we have a use for energy, um, especially this kind of use for energy, that it could be uh, a net good in in what it incentivizes. So even there, I, I don't want to impute too much knowledge and understanding of the future to Satoshi, but I, you'll wonder whether Satoshi's like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to, if this thing takes off, it's going to create a demand for all sorts of energy and it's, it's going to prompt um, energy development on a scale that we've never seen before because um, energy's always had to be portable or something like that, but here it doesn't. And, yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah I, I find it really interesting. No, I agree completely the impact on energy markets is hard to get your head around honestly um and yeah just kind of like the the rough description i give is like this global bounty program for you know cheaper underused or unused energy right we just we have this now perpetual global incentive to monetize every source of economic economically available energy And when you stop and consider like the physics of life, like that's what we are, the more energy we harness is civilization is a function of the amount of energy we harness and channel. So it's like this whole thing is like, it's a real, seems like it could be a real engine of capitalism and civilization in a way that we've never before imagined. Yeah. Yeah, I think about it here. So I, I live in a town of about 30,000 people. Uh, it wouldn't make much economic sense. So we have we have sun like 300 days a year uh, and we have wind probably more than that. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't make much sense to have a huge solar farm, a huge wind farm or anything out here because there's just not enough people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we could put a huge solar farm or a huge wind, we also have tons of empty space. So if we could do that and we could use half of the energy to mine Bitcoin and the other half to power the entire town, could the could the mining half actually pay for the other half? Mm-hmm. Um, so that we've, in essence, um, created free energy for an entire town because of Bitcoin. <laughs> I don't think that's I don't think that's too far fetched of an idea. And I think a lot of towns could start doing this. It, it does depend on Bitcoin adoption, right? On number going up because mm-hmm. as there's more competition. Uh, it could also make it less profitable for, you know, um, people who are using other kinds of energy, dirtier energy to mine. And so shift the the energy grid even more towards renewable energy. So I think there's lots of reasons to, to, to be confident that even a proof of work model for Bitcoin 
um, can be a net good. Now, a proof of work model for like Dogecoin or Litecoin, or if if the native asset isn't valuable, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe right. maybe those shouldn't be proof of work coins. Um, but if Bitcoin is going to be the monetary digital asset, I think you have to have a proof of work system for whatever that is. Yeah, I agree. I think that's well said. Um, and that's a good note, a good note to end on. Um, yeah, Bitcoin is something very profound, I think, as your writing so brilliantly um, lays out. Um, I just have to thank you. You know, I really appreciate you going to this effort. I know writing is extremely difficult, um, but I think you've put together the main points in a way that's clear um, and hopefully cutting through a lot of the noise. There's a lot of noise in the crypto space, but I think your writing did a good job of, of slicing through that. Um, could you please let my audience know where they could find you if they want to learn more about you or your work? Yeah, absolutely. So both of these papers appeared in uh, a philosophy journal called Philosophy Compass that introduces um, philosophers to certain topics. And I wrote both of them with uh, two collaborators, Andrew M. Bailey and Craig Wormke. So all of the work that we've done together and all the work that we've done individually on Bitcoin is uh, at resistance.money. Um, that also has links to our Twitter accounts. Uh, I'm at Rettler B, Andrew's at resistance money and Craig is at Craig Wormke. Um, and yeah, you'll be able to find the, the academic stuff that we've written as well as the popular stuff, as well as podcasts and other media and stuff. Awesome. Bradley, thanks so much, man. This conversation was a joy and thanks Great. for coming on. My pleasure.